From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. Hey, J.R., big event last week. All eight Democrats vying for the chance to take on Governor Walker this fall shared the stage at UWM for their only broadcast debate with just weeks to go before the August 14th primary. What were some of the highlights or things that you found interesting? Well, it was interesting, you know, it's obvious that the Democrats all have an issue with the Foxconn deal. Um, I think all but two of them said they would try to kill the deal if they were elected. Um, the moderators pushed them a little bit on some talk of cutting the prison population in half. It's not quite clear when they've talked about wanting to reduce it, uh, how they would do it. And really, nobody broke free in that debate. There, was, there were exchanges, there were a couple of jazz, but I don't think that debate, from what I can tell so far, has changed the trajectory of this race. Was there a clear winner, and who lost, in your opinion? You know, in talking to people, I don't know that anybody really did anything that put them so far out front that you say, ah, that was a a defining moment of this race in that debate. I don't also don't know that anybody really lost it. I mean, you know, people had better performances than others, got more attention than others a little bit, or, you know, their their answers were a little bit more kind of uh, attention-grabbing. But I don't think that's the thing that's going to drive this race. What I get from talking to people is that, we're still waiting for that final burst of TV and radio, that final stretch of the race where we actually see paid media in this race. Because so far, we have not seen anybody up on the air doing anything, and I, you know, I, I don't think people have really tuned in. So the challenge to these guys is going to be, you know, how much can they pull together to get up on the air, and how do they do it? Because remember, you know, TV is a, a traditional way to reach voters, but who's who's watching TV in July? A lot of people are, you know, tuning in their summer vacations already. So do you do TV? Do you do radio? Do you do digital ads? Do you, you know, how do you target voters? How much can you get from their eyeballs between now and August 14th, and, and will it be effective? The candidates didn't attack each other. Instead, they kept the focus on Governor Walker. Do you think that was a conscious decision not to criticize each other? That's a good question, because one thing we've been watching is that, you know, Tony Evers is perceived to be the front runner in the race, in part because he's been leading the polls that we've seen so far. He's won statewide three times. He's run statewide four times. So there's a perception that that, na- that that lead that he has is based off a name ID. There are two theories that I hear. One theory is that you don't have to tear down Tony Evers to build yourself up. You can run a decent ad campaign uh, ahead of the primary in which you provide a viable alternative to Tony Evers, and that gets you a look from voters because they go, oh, well, I only really know Tony before, but now I see this other person. This has got my attention. The second theory is that that's not enough. You have to tear down Tony Evers in the process of building yourself up because look at the Marquette poll. You know, a lot of these guys who are kind of contenders like a Kelda Roy's or a Malin Mitchell, they were in like the low single digits. So to get there, the theory is they have to also tear Tony down. So how is it going to play out? Who's going to throw the punch and how are they going to do it? Will it be something that's, you know, an issues-based thing or will it be something that gets personal? I mean, there's a lot of questions about how they're going to approach that final push, and there's always the, the potential, if you attack somebody who people like, that, that will backfire on you. So how are they going to handle the attack if they throw one? 
Another big event last week, President Trump appointed federal judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy. Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin immediately came out in support of Kavanaugh, while Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin said she would not vote to confirm him. Now that Wisconsin senators have laid their cards on the table, how heavily do you think they'll be lobbied to change their minds? Well, you know, Baldwin's a more interesting one because she's obviously up for re-election in November. And, and looking nationally, there's a debate about what, you know, quote-unquote Trump state Democrats should do. Should they vote for the president's nominee or should they vote against that, you know, Kavanaugh and that, and that way avoid alienating their base? It's different, though, for Baldwin, for what I can tell, being from Wisconsin versus an Indiana, a North Dakota, a West Virginia, a Missouri. I mean, places where Trump is quite popular still. In Wisconsin, his, his number's been upside down his entire presidency. Um, he won the state by 23,000 votes, I think with 47.2%. So it's not like in, he's really a dominant or a, a popular person in Wisconsin. So I don't know that Baldwin faces the same pressure or the same opportunities to pressure her as there are for somebody like a you know, mansion in West Virginia, something like that. Uh, my guess from talking to people is that this issue will end up being more about the basis for each parties, where, you know, the if you're a liberal and you like Baldwin, in fact, she's going to vote no on Kavanaugh, makes you happy, right? Make, that's what you want to see. If you're a conservative and you see she's voting no, you're going, okay, I want somebody who will be more hospital than the President Trump's uh, nominees, and I'm going to go, for, and that's going to give me a little more, in, more encouragement to vote come November. But I just don't see right now, I'm talking to people, this is going to be a huge huge game changer for Baldwin in the Senate race. Circling back to the topic of elections, the deadline is today for candidates to release fundraising numbers to the state. Some candidates submitted their reports last week. The highlights include Democratic gubernatorial candidate Kelda Royce raised nearly $1 million so far. Republican U.S. Senate candidate Kevin Nicholson raised more than a million in the second quarter of the year. Republican 1st District Congressional candidate Brian Stile raised $650,000 in just two months, while Democratic 1st District candidate Randy Bryce collected more than a million between April and June. What do you make of these numbers, and how do the candidates translate this kind of money into votes? We'll look at the Senate race first. Tammy Baldwin is in a category class all by herself. When it comes to fundraising that race, she raised $4.4 million in the second quarter. Um, you know, that is obviously more, more than Kevin Nicholson raised. Um, the expectation is that Baldwin will continue to have that kind of financial edge for the near future. The question becomes, once the primary is over, either Nicholson or Vukmir emerges, uh, will the money then flow in to pump those guys up afterward? In the first congressional district, it's interesting, you know, style is kind of perceived to be the GOP establishment pick. He's supported by Paul Ryan. Um, he's somebody appointed to board of trustees for UW by... Governor Walker or Board, uh, Board of Regents. So he's seen as somebody who is the establishment pick. This is a, kind of reinforces that notion that he is somebody who's going to have a lot of backing for the GOP nomination. On this side with Bryce, um, he's had a healthy financial advantage over Kathy Meyer so far in that race. What's interesting is his fundraising pace has slowed. He raised two some million dollars in the first quarter. Now he raised the 1.2. So I mean, it's still a really good number. But it's just not as much as it used to be. And the perception is that because Paul Ryan's no longer running for election, some of the sheen is going to come off of that race to really you know, use uh, 
price to go after Paul Ryan. It's not really that same opportunity anymore. So that's slowed a little bit. Uh, and then, you know, the governor's race, we're still waiting to see what Governor Walker has and what the rest of the Democratic field looks like. Because, and with Keldis, she put our number last week of what she raised overall, but didn't really say, like, where it came from. Was it personal money? Was it all from out from other donors? And it all spends the same in the end. But how you raise it is interesting sometimes to see if you've got a wide network of supporters or if you're personally financing the campaign. And the key, again, for all those Democratic control candidates is how much can they hoard toward the final weeks and then put as much as they can into their paid media to get some attention in the closing days. And finally, in an election that isn't coming up until next April, State Appeals Court Chief Judge Lisa Neubauer said last week that she is running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. She's the first to formally announce for the seat being vacated by retiring Justice Shirley Abrahamson. Several others have said they're thinking of running. Neubauer gave an interview in which she tried to assure voters that she is not the assumed Democratic pick, even though Democratic Governor Jim Doyle appointed her to the appeals court in 2007. How successful do you think she'll be in dodging the liberal candidate label? That's, it'll be interesting to see uh, this past Supreme Court race was different in Wisconsin in that we kind of had a little more open talk from at least some of the candidates about their positions. A lot of times, judicial candidates will shy away from that. Uh, Tim Burns, however, ran as a kind of a unapologetic pro- progressive for the Supreme Court and the primary and came in third place. So Neubauer may be kind of going back to what we're used to, which is more of a talking about experience, being, you know, somebody who's faithful to the law, those kinds of things. But where her support comes from will help tell us a little bit about what her story is. There'll be questions about who else is going to run. Um, we're all expecting Brian Hagedorn, who's also on the sec- Second District Court of Appeals to get in sometime before too long. He's a former legal counsel for Governor Walker. Uh, looks like a conservative candidate. You know, who else might get in? Where will those judges line up? And then that'll kind of help shape the race quite a bit because if you're Neubauer, if you only have a conservative alternative, you can kind of run from more from the middle and then get people from the left and the middle. With Judge Dallet this year before she won the Supreme Court race in April, you know, she was trying to be a little bit more of a kind of moderate candidate, maybe a little bit left of center, but Burns running as such a unapologetic progressive to some people helped pull her toward the left in the primary, and that's where she kind of ended up being during the general. So will it be a race like that? We'll see. But it's um, it's definitely, you know, we know, we as voters and journalists, we know the candidates, who the liberal one is, who the conservative one is, who's, who's more of a Democrat, more of a Republican. Um, but sometimes the judges try to hold more of a, or tow more of a kind of a nonpartisan line. We'll just kind of see how it plays out this fall. Thanks for joining us, JR. Anytime. That's wispolitics.com editor JR Ross. You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.